All right, please turn with me to Psalm 119. That's going to be our Old Testament reading for this morning. This is a fairly familiar text, at least it will be to most of you. Psalm 119, this is a familiar section of it. This great exaltation and celebration of the law of God. So beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Then if you'll turn over to Colossians chapter 2, that's the text we'll be considering this morning. And as you turn there, just reflecting on the words of Psalm 119, one of the great struggles of the Christian life is this constant grappling that we undergo between, uh, with the place of the law in the life of believers. We tend to oscillate between, on the one hand, uh, emphasizing the law, emphasizing good works to the point of almost making our salvation depend on them, but then we'll go all the way to the other side of treating obedience as if it's purely optional. On the one side, we, de- we desire to live godly, faithful, obedient lives, and yet if anybody boldly confronts us in our sin and calls us to repentance and obedience, we accuse them of being legalists and of binding our conscience. We're so jealous to guard the great doctrine of justification by faith alone that we fear that any call or requirement of obedience is going to, uh, is going to translate to works righteousness as if we're working our way towards salvation. And yet we know, we can't deny, even thinking of Psalm 119, that God requires his people to obey. He requires faithfulness to his law. And so we as Christians need to discern between the error of legalism and the requirement, the necessity of holiness. And that's Paul's concern, one of Paul's concerns as he writes to the church at Colossae, which we'll be reading today. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, please do be with us as we consider your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be working even now in our hearts to cause us to be receptive to these exhortations inspired by him. And Lord, I do pray that you would be renewing our minds and working in and through us, Lord, that we may bear the fruits of righteousness and of obedience in our lives. Father, make this service fruitful to the people and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just briefly, a little bit of background on Colossians. So the church at Colossae, uh, the city was a, uh, it was a Roman city, Gentile infused, mostly Gentiles. And it was a city that used to be flourishing and wealthy, but had since sort of fallen into some disarray. It was no longer a major significant city in the empire. And as I mentioned, it was a predominantly Gentile church that had been planted uh, some years earlier by Epaphras, Paul's companion. So Paul had actually never met the Colossian believers. He had never been to the church at Colossae, but he had heard about a particular heresy that had begun to take root within the church. And this heresy, it wasn't a specific religion, and it wasn't a uh, particular single brand of pagan philosophy, but it was kind of a marriage between the Judaizing heresy and an early form of the Gnostic heresy. And so we see just in the way that Paul addresses it here in chapter 2 where we were reading, he mentions... um the festivals and Jewish Sabbath keeping and dietary laws. And throughout the letter, a couple of times he mentioned circumcision. And that was, you know, a, 
hallmark of the heresy of the Judaizers. We see this throughout the New Testament. This was kind of the first significant error that the church had to deal with. The idea that before you became a Christian, you had to be a Jew first. Because Christ was the Messiah to the Jews, if you were going to be in the covenant, if you were going to be among the people of God, then you had to undergo the rituals, the ceremonies that were peculiar to the people of God throughout the Old Covenant. And so it emphasized the, again, circumcision, ceremonial laws, dietary laws, and all the rest that were particular to the Old Testament Jews. That was common throughout the New Testament. The Jerusalem Council dealt with it. Galatians is particularly dealing with that heresy. But here in Colossians, it's coupled with a sort of pagan mysticism, as I mentioned, an early form of Gnosticism, which was the pursuit of special, secret, hidden knowledge that went beyond Christ through dreams, through visions, through, as he mentions, the worship of angels. And part and parcel with the Gnostic belief was this this belief that The physical world was the source of evil. And so the body was something to be escaped or transcended. And so it led to things like he mentions here, asceticism, which was severe uh, bodily deprivation. He says severity to the body. And so both of these, when you combine the the heresy of the Judaizers and the heresy of the Gnostics, you get something that in its outworking led to, among other things, an unchristian legalism, an emphasis on works, on outward uh, conformity to specific rules and standards that were man-made. So with the Judaizers and its insistence on maintaining the traditions of the Old Covenant people, uh, those doctrines, it led to an emphasis on performative works. And this is because so much of Jewish identity under the Old Covenant was wrapped up in being very obviously, visibly distinct from the Gentiles in everything, from what they ate to how they dressed to how they grew their hair, circumcision, absolutely everything about the Old Covenant Jews had to do in part with being evidently distinct from the Gentiles. Sorry, I'm fighting a cold, guys. Please bear with me. And so because of that, because so much of Jewish identity was uh, had an emphasis on being outwardly, overtly distinct, it was very easy when that distinctness was uncoupled from a heart that loved God and desired to serve him. It was very easy for legalism to flourish with an emphasis on just the externalities, just going through the motions. This was throughout the Old Testament. And then especially in the period of the New Testament under Roman occupation, when the Jews were living among the Gentiles, they couldn't be so much uh, physically distinct as they were when they had their own uh, their own kingdom in Judah and in Israel. And so there was even more of an emphasis on those external distinctions and the way they dressed and their traditions. That's why you had the Pharisees so prominent during Jesus' life and ministry. And then so for the Jews who embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the Jews who converted to Christianity, this distinctness that was so much a part of their custom and their tradition was very difficult for them to abandon. And so they sought to incorporate it with the Christian message, with the gospel. They sought to incorporate the distinctive particulars of Jewishness with the gospel. And that led to the New Testament heresy of its faith in Christ plus 
circumcision plus you know dietary laws plus Jewish Sabbath keeping and those other old covenant uh, particularities. So you have that on the one side. On the other side, you have this particular brand of Gnosticism with its disdain for the physical world that, as I mentioned, led to severe bodily deprivation, external regulations, the point of which were to make the people more holy by being, quote-unquote, less physical. So the more you're able to transcend the physical world, the more you're able to transcend the body, the more holy you are, the more liberated you are. And that led to a lot of man-made rules and regulations to curb the evil physical world, including the body. And so both belief systems lent themselves to significant legalism, which is what Paul is warning against here. And so what are some of the characteristics of legalism we're going to consider this morning? And these characteristics, Paul's addressing them here in Colossae and these particulars, but they transcend church history. There's a constant temptation, a constant uh, susceptibility that Christians have to legalism. And so we want to look out for some of those characteristics. The first thing is that legalism tends to minimize Christ or to miss Christ for particular laws and regulations. There's an emphasis on works rather than the one who fulfills them. And so if you look at chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, he says, Again, the Judaizers, they were looking at the ceremonial law. They were looking at the dietary laws, the feasts, the festivals, circumcision, the Sabbath, and all the rest. And they were so wrapped up in examining those things that they missed the fact that Christ fulfilled them, that all of that old covenant ceremonial law had its fulfillment and its termination in Jesus Christ. He perfectly fulfilled it, and so those laws are no longer binding. And so in their carefulness in their emphasis on obeying those particular old covenant ceremonial laws, the Judaizers missed Christ. They overlooked him because they were so focused on those particulars. They missed the fact that those were shadows, but Christ is the substance. They're still paying attention to the shadows. They miss the substance. But this isn't only a problem for kind of the old covenant ceremonial law. Oftentimes, even as Christians who are seeking to obey God's transcendent moral law, which we are still bound to, it has not been abrogated in any way, shape, or form, even when we're trying to obey that law, we still tend to, if we're falling into legalism, emphasize the methods, emphasize the minute details. We emphasize every, ever, emphasize every specific uh form of obeying the laws, and we put so much focus on obedience, outward obedience and conformity, that we miss that Jesus Christ is the one whom we obey. He's the one who empowers our obedience. He's the reason why we obey. And most importantly, he is the one who fulfilled all obedience on our behalf. And so when we inevitably fail to uphold and obey the law, Christ is the one who perfectly did so. Legalism, however, because it's so focused on the methods, on the external outward obedience, it tends to overlook, minimize, or altogether miss Jesus Christ. 
So it doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself in works righteousness. Legalism isn't just this basic idea that you work and you obey the law so you can go to heaven or so you can earn everlasting life. That's rarely actually the, uh, the belief behind legalism. Mostly it's an emphasis on the works, the methods, the, the particulars over against Christ. That was true of the Judaizers. It was true of the Gnostics as well. They minimized Christ because they sought this secret, transcendent, extra knowledge that went beyond and above Christ. And so Paul says of them that <clears throat> they insist on asceticism and the worship of angels. They go on in detail about visions. They're puffed up without reason, and they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. <clears throat> they're going, they're seeking something outside, something beyond Christ, some principle that's going to actually liberate them from their sinful bodies, and they're not holding fast to the head. They're not understanding that Christ is the one who fulfilled righteousness. Christ is the one who obeyed the law perfectly, and Christ is the one who gives us the power truly to obey, to escape uh, the, the bonds of sin to actually put to death our earthly wickedness. And so much of legalism, again, it's a, a lot of it's about emphasis. So much of it boils down to a lack of trust in the organic, natural process of spirit-powered sanctification for Christians. Paul says that when we hold fast to the head, we grow with a growth that's from God. The idea of sanctification and of Christian obedience is that when you've been born again, when Christ has given you a new hope, it's natural. It's, uh, it's an organic process. John picks up on this in his epistle. John chapter 3 No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This idea that we've been given a new nature, God's Holy Spirit abides in us, he lives in us, he dwells in us. And so that's going to organically within us produce the fruits of obedience. Now this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there's no effort on our part. That's something that's easy to mistake. Organic and natural doesn't mean effortless. Think of if you're planting a tree, you're planting some sort of fruit-producing tree. There's a lot of work that goes into it. You need to prepare the soil. You need to dig. You need to water. You need to make sure there's sunlight. You need to prune. You need to weed. You need to do actual work. You need to put forth great effort. But the process of the tree bearing fruit is a perfectly natural and organic process. That's the idea of sanctification for the Christian. We work. We put forth effort. We strive. We toil. But Christians producing fruit is natural, it's organic, and it comes by holding fast to the head who causes the body to grow. Legalism, on the other hand, would be like breaking off a branch from that fruit tree, burying it in the ground, watering, tilling, doing the soil, making sure, doing all the work, even more work than you would ordinarily do, and expecting that branch that's been cut off from the root to bear fruit. It doesn't work. It's unnatural. It's mechanical. It's 
it doesn't trust in the process that God has ordained for obedience and sanctification. So legalism replaces the natural and organic process of sanctification with something mechanical, something that's merely external, something that we think that if we're checking off these boxes or keeping these rules, then we must be doing it right. That's not it. It misses Christ by emphasizing processes, checklists, and mechanical conformity But even worse than that, not only does legalism miss Christ, but it seeks to go beyond Christ. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings? So Paul is saying, look, You have died to the elemental spirits of this world. You have been set free from the condemnation of the law. Nobody can point to you and say you are guilty because Christ has already died for you. The context of this passage, Paul earlier in chapter two had just been going on talking about how in Christ, we receive the true circumcision of the heart. In Christ, we're buried in baptism and raised to new life. In Christ, the record of our debt is canceled because it's been nailed to the cross. In Christ, the rulers and the authorities have been put to open shame. And so those elemental spirits, those rulers and authorities of this world who will point and condemn the accuser, Satan, he has no claim on us. And so Paul is saying, you've died to that. You have died with Christ. So why are you submitting to these external man-made rules and regulations as if you're so fearful of condemnation? Legalism is not content to observe and obey the law set down by God and enforced by Christ, but legalism insists on adding to the law because it fails to understand that Christ has already freed us from the condemnation of the law. So what you end up with is this slavish fear of condemnation, always seeking to, well, you just got to be safe, always seeking to do a little bit extra to build walls of tradition around God's law. That's what legalism tends to do. And it's rooted in a misunderstanding of the completeness and the finished nature of the work of Christ. It misunderstands Christ's definitive victory over sin, over death, and over condemnation. And so it's as if legalism, it's almost like an insurance policy where you say, okay, I know I'm covered with Christ, but just in case, I'm going to kind of keep some of these extra rules. Just in case, because you can't be too careful, I'm going to add to the law of Christ. I'm going to go beyond what Christ commands of me, and we're going to make sure just to be safe then I'm going to submit to all these external rules and regulations. And it doesn't stop there. It's not as if it's only a particular person with a hang up in their conscience where they're submitting to something that they know is, you know, not commanded by Christ. But legalism always tries to enforce those man-made rules and regulations on others. Paul hints at that there. He says, he's writing as if to the congregation that there are these leaders in the church who are calling on everybody in the congregation to submit to these man-made regulations of do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. Legalism is not content to simply keep it to itself. You know, if I have a particular scruple, I'm going to observe that, but you know, I'm not going to force any of you guys to do that. Now, legalism wants to bind our own conscience, and bind the conscience of everybody else around us with extra man-made rules and traditions. 
And ultimately what you end up having is human tradition exalted to the place of divine law. And this was characteristic both of the Judaizers and of the Gnostics who both wanted to go beyond what Christ had laid down. But perhaps the most characteristic thing about legalism is ultimately it just reduces down to a powerless externalism. In verse 23, Paul says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have an appearance of wisdom. They look so good on the outside. And that's the thing about legalism. It wants to look good. It cares about what other people see and how other people perceive us. It desires to look obedient, to look righteous, to seem so wise and so holy to other people. They want, legalism wants other people to look at itself, to look at us and say, wow, that person is wise. That person's obedient. That person is holy and righteous. And again, it sounds so reasonable when it has that appearance of wisdom. It seems so harmless. If you hear a legalist arguing for some principle or some rule or some law that goes beyond scripture, they make it sound so basic and wise. How could anybody argue with this? How could anybody disagree? If God so clearly doesn't want us to be out of our right mind, God wants us to be sober-minded, and we know the only point of alcohol, what ends up happening is you're going to alter your state of mind. You're going to end up acting foolishly. So God really doesn't want us to drink alcohol at all. It can sound so plain and simple. It sounds so reasonable. It has the appearance of wisdom. It seems like, well, you know, this person, they seem to know what they're talking about. They're just trying to keep it safe. They're just trying to keep us from sin. It has this appearance of wisdom, but ultimately it is self-made religion. It has its reference point, not in the word of God, but in man's own traditions, man's own precepts and teachings. And it's driven once again by a desire to be seen and to be noticed by others. It emphasizes external appearances. You want to look the right way. You want to say the right things. You want to clean up your act. It's inordinately concerned with how other people are perceiving us. That is a classic hallmark of legalism, that it's so worried about how other people see us. And this happens even when you have the best intentions, even if you are sincerely, truly in your heart, just wanting to obey God and honor him, you're, you can tell that you are trending towards legalism if you are starting to give more weight to how other people see you rather than how God sees you. And according to Paul, this is what ends up happening with legalism. We end up caring more about how other people see us than how God does. And that means that there's no actual power in legalism to truly kill sin. He says it is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism presents itself as being kind of the the cure for sin. If you just follow these principles, if you just obey these rules, if you just keep these checklists, then you're not going to be sinful. You're going to be set free from your sin. You're going to have victory. You're going to have obedience. Paul says, no, these man-made regulations, this thing that has an appearance of wisdom, it has no value. It has no power whatsoever to truly stop the indulgence of the flesh. And that's because it's so concerned with how other people see us that it's not looking at the heart which God sees. It may regulate physical, tangible outworkings. It may, uh, it may keep us from, you know, doing certain public sins that people are going to see and notice. 
However, it has no true power to cause us to grow in righteousness and sanctification because it's so focused on appearances that really what tends to happen is it allows sin more and more to flourish in the heart where people can't see, but where God still does. So legalism is utterly incapable of making us righteous, of giving us growth in Christ, or of even drawing us near to God because it diminishes Christ's work. It seeks to go beyond Christ's command. It's primarily focused on the self, on our reputation, on being respectable, and on being perceived by others as righteous. And all of us, this is a very dangerous error that all of us are prone to. If we care about obedience, it's very easy to fall into this way of thinking. So Paul warns very strongly against legalism. Now, too often for us, we're content to end the conversation there. We're pretty comfortable with warnings against legalism. And while it is true that legalism is real, there are legalistic people, legalistic churches, legalistic denominations and communities, much more common in our day and in evangelicalism is antinomianism, which is the diminishing of the law. It's uh, taking the law out of its proper place and minimizing it such that it's almost just seen as optional, as I mentioned earlier. See, our culture, we are so afraid of being called legalists that we take any requirement, any strong exhortation and requirement of true Christian obedience as being works righteousness. If somebody says, no, Christian, you must obey these commands, then you'll very quickly hear an accusation, oh, that's works righteousness. You're trying to tell me that I have to do this if I want to get to heaven. It's, we are so afraid of being called legalist, of being accused of binding the conscience, that we so often minimize the true commands and the law of God. So Paul, indeed, he warns forcefully against legalism, and that's not something that we want to mess with, but he doesn't stop there. He exhorts his audience to the opposite of legalism, which is not lawlessness, but holiness. And holiness is rooted in the fact of having died and been raised with Christ. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Having died with Christ liberates us from the condemnation of the law. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he's contrasting 2.20. So in chapter 2.20, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why are you submitting to these human regulations? And then in chapter 3.1, if with Christ you've been raised, seek the things that are above. So he's saying, you died with Christ. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be fearful of the condemnation of the law so much so that you're submitting to extra biblical rules and regulations. You've been raised with Christ. So look to Christ. That's what he's saying. He's contrasting that. So there's actual true power in the Holy Spirit, in the new birth that every Christian has undergone. There's actual real power. We've been liberated from the condemnation of the law and we've been empowered by the Spirit to truly obey the commands of Christ. And this is what we're called to. So immediately... Unlike legalism, which minimizes Christ, which wants to go beyond Christ, which focuses on the self, holiness 
calls us to begin with Christ, to begin with his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, and our vital union with him, that it's not just that Christ did these things, but we died with him, we were raised with him, and we are going to reign with him for all eternity. So holiness is merely living in this reality. It's living in the reality of what Christ has already done in us and for us and is doing through us. And he calls us, to understand and to meditate on our future exaltation and glory with Christ. Again, it's not just that we've died and been raised with him. We will reign with Christ Jesus. He says in verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. So we're thinking of, we're looking forward to the glory that we're gonna share with Christ Jesus. Jesus died for us and was raised with us in order that we may become new creatures. We are going to be fulfilled in eternity with Christ. We will be glorified, new creatures in him, and our lives here are to be spent being more and more conformed to that image that we will be for all eternity. For all eternity, we will dwell with Christ. We will be glorious like Christ. We will reign with him. And so our lives are to be spent preparing for that, growing into that, growing into what God has made us to be, applying the reality of our death to sin and resurrection to righteousness in our lives. As he says in verse nine, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Holiness is daily dying to our sin, putting to death our sin because we have already died with Christ and been raised with him to new life. And so when we begin here, we see that holiness is primarily concerned not with how others see us, but how God sees us, not by putting on a show for others, but by living before the face of God. And so with that in mind, we really are commanded to obey specific commands. He says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity, specific, overt, outward commands. Paul here is binding our conscience, saying you, Christian, cannot do this. That's law. We don't minimize the law. We don't downplay the law. We uphold and rejoice in the law as the psalmist of Psalm 119 did. We're careful to observe the law. The outward obedience does matter. It absolutely matters, and we don't minimize that. But rather than seeing the law as just a checklist of do's and don'ts, our top concern, because it's obedience before God who sees everything, we care about the roots of sin in the heart. So it doesn't stop with sexual immorality and evil desire, sexual immorality and impurity, but it goes on to passion, evil desire, and covetousness, secret sins of the heart that give birth to outward acts of sexual morality and impurity. But holiness is not just concerned with the external, it's concerned with the inward. It's concerned with the roots of sin, and it actually has the power to put sin to death by the roots, to lay the axe to the root of the tree. Now, this is a higher standard than legalism demands. People tend to think that legalism is an overemphasis. It's too high of a standard. It's too difficult. As a matter of fact, holiness is a much higher standard because it's concerned with the heart. It says it's not good enough just to conform yourself to this outward list of rules. You need to be 
transformed in the heart. You need to put sin to death within the heart. You're not allowed to harbor sin inwardly. Just because other people don't see it doesn't mean that it's not true sin. A good example of this kind of legalism is what's called Side B Christianity or the Gay Celibate Christian Movement, where they'll say that, yes, homosexual behavior is sinful. Outward homosexuality, there's no place for it. There's no place for gay marriage. None of it. If you have same-sex attraction, you must remain celibate. But the same-sex attraction itself is not sinful or it's not disordered necessarily. And this is just another form of legalism because it says, as long as you're keeping this outward list of rules, as long as you're not engaging in this particular behavior, then you're not in sin. But in reality, that sort of message gives us no power to actually kill sin by its roots, to grab it down by the roots and yank it up. Because sin isn't just our outward behavior, it's our inward desires. And so when you tell someone that this is only sin if you do it outwardly, but if you desire it in your heart, it's not sin, you're not giving them the true fullness of the gospel, the full counsel of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that actually does have the power to kill sin. It actually is a value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, and more, it's a value in stopping the indulgence of the heart. It leaves the foundations of sin unchecked and so it allows sin to flourish in our hearts. And the same can be said of all a host of other sins. Hatred and bitterness. It's so easy for people given to legalism to despise and disdain brothers and sisters in Christ in their hearts. They'll put on an act. They'll wear a smile. They'll act loving. They'll put on a good show. They'll keep up appearances. But in their hearts, there's bitterness and there's anger towards others. And it's left unchecked. And so it's allowed to grow and flourish in the heart. But as long as no one saw it, I'll slander a brother in secret. But as long as it doesn't get back to him, I'm good. That's what legalism leads to. Greed, selfishness, pride. Those are all sins that legalism tends to give a lot of life to because they happen in the heart and they can be hidden from others. Legalism that's so concerned with how other people see us, it's really easy to be given over and indulge in those inward sins that nobody can see as long as you keep up appearances, as long as you make it look good on the outside. Holiness depends on the real power of our death and resurrection in Christ, which actually does enable us to put sin to death in the heart. And again, this does not happen automatically, but it does happen naturally. Just like we mentioned with the the tree, there's effort that goes into causing a tree to bear fruit. There's hard work and toil that goes into it, but it's a perfectly natural process. And so, As Christians striving for holiness, yes, it takes hard work. It takes self-discipline. It takes obeying when we don't feel like it. It takes resisting temptations that we do feel like and not doing things that we're enticed to do. It takes all of those things. Don't get this idea that true holiness means that you have to actually not desire sin. And if you desire it, well, I've already sinned anyway, so I might as well go all the way. No, holiness takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. But as Philippians 2 says, it's through our effort, but it's not by our own strength. 
Therefore, as you have always obeyed, now not only is in my presence, much more in my, abs- my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out our salvation. We do will, we do work, but God is the one who's strengthening us. We put forth the effort, but it's not our strength because our strength fails. We do, in Christ, have the objective, empowering reality of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We have been regenerated to new life, and so we do. We are able to have true victory, true obedience, true growth in actual holiness. So first and foremost, holiness is God-focused, but secondarily, it's other-focused, not in terms of being seen by others, but of serving others, of strengthening others. Paul, when he gets into the application, says, put on as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. See, legalism cares about what other people see. It cares about perceptions. It cares about appearances. It wants to be noticed and it wants to be respected. It's performative. Holiness begins with the reality of the new birth and then understands the consequential reality of the genuine unity that exists between Christians is concerned with strengthening others and serving others. Holiness thinks little of the self. We have humility. We understand how sinful we are. We understand the grace that we've received, and so we're humbled by that. It shows patience towards others. It's compassionate because it understands that other people are weak as we are. Holiness is ready to give the benefit of the doubt to other Christians. It doesn't assume the worst all the time, but it's ready to... See, legalism is so scrupulous. Legalism wants to point out everything that somebody does wrong. Holiness, on the other hand, wants to give others the benefit of the doubt. It desires in true, genuine unity and Christian charity to not automatically think the worst of others, but to think the best of them and to understand that Christ is working in them and that they're working through their sin as well. And when there is real sin with real damage that's done, we are quick to forgive because we understand that Christ has forgiven us. And that's the hallmark of true holiness. Holiness has a personal regenerate comprehension of the condemnation we deserve, of the undeserved patience and forgiveness that we've received from God. And so it's quick to extend that to other people. Legalism wants everyone to be rigid and perfect, and there's no grace in legalism. But because holiness understands grace, that we have gotten what we do not deserve, that God is so patient with us, that we sin so regularly before God, and we receive such forgiveness that we are overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving, that we are ready to extend forgiveness to others. We are quick to extend it to others. Are you like that? Question that. If that's something that doesn't ring true for you, and we all may struggle with it, but if that doesn't ring true, then check your heart because you may be given over to legalism. But where there's that true understanding of the mercy we've received, we are ready to show mercy to others. In short, true holiness produces genuine love for others. Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It begins with the new heart that's imitating Christ in in his patience, in his self-sacrifice, in his service, and in his forgiveness. Holiness is imitating a person, not keeping an impersonal list of rules. It's truly putting others above ourselves. 
It's having the integrity to honor others even when nobody sees that we're not going to slander and gossip about other people even if there's no chance it's going to get back to them. Legalism is so worried about what other people see. Holiness says, no, I'm going to have integrity before God and I'm not going to talk bad about a brother or sister in Christ. I'm not going to gossip about this person because God sees and it cares about the heart. Now, we have to say, holiness, all of this, it doesn't preclude strong confrontation of sin. We are told, we're exhorted, teach and admonish one another. In fact, for there to be legitimate unity and legitimate growth and holiness, there needs to be regular confession of sin and regular repentance. We need to. Where there is legitimate sin, it has to be confronted. It has to be called out. All in a spirit of humility, all recognizing that we ourselves are sinners, always taking the plank out of our own eye first, never self-righteous, and especially especially not harboring secret joy when you have to go confront a brother in sin. That's another thing about legalism. It loves to see other people stumble. It loves to have to confront somebody else in sin because legalism is so self-righteous. But holiness, yes, we confront in sin, but we don't cherish any feelings. We're not happy when we see somebody sin. Not even any part of us can be happy about that. And it's always done with the genuine desire to reconcile. And this is something, this is why it's so hard. Because this can't be faked. It takes the actual new heart. It takes actual regeneration. It takes the Holy Spirit working in us. You can't pretend to love people. You have to actually love them. You can't pretend not to harbor ill will towards others. You truly can't harbor ill will. You can't pretend to forgive. You have to really forgive. Legalism, when it conf- or, I'm sorry, holiness, when it confronts sin, is very eager to forgive. It wants repentance and wants forgiveness, and it doesn't want to ever bring up the sin again because that's true forgiveness. You're not going to bring it up again. And above all, Holiness bears the fruit of true joy and true thankfulness. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Legalism is fearful. It's fearful of condemnation. It's exhausting because you're always trying to keep a list of extra rules and regulations and be so careful that you haven't misstepped anywhere. And it leads to despair. It leads to frustration and it leads to bitterness. It sucks all the joy out of the Christian life. But holiness, on the other hand, bears the legitimate, genuine fruits of joy and thankfulness. It sees the commands as not burdensome, as Jesus said they were. It sees the law as a delight, as the psalmist writes. And it truly is, it sees the law as truly the way of blessing, a good gift from God for his people in order to bless us. And so holiness seeks to apply the law in all of life. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. We're not trying to find loopholes. We're not trying to find places to cut corners. We're not trying to find areas where God's law doesn't apply. Holiness wants to apply the law of God to all of life because it knows the law is good and it blesses us. And so also at the same time as we do that, 
Holiness is also joyful because we understand that Christ has done it all already for us. We understand the victory has already been won, that God has given us in his mercy the power to truly obey and has given us a good community of faithful brothers and sisters to help us along in our obedience. Now, this isn't painting a rosy picture. It doesn't mean that things are easy. It doesn't mean that obedience is always fun. But the fruit of joy and of thankfulness is produced by holiness. And that contrasts very sharply with the bitter fruit of despair and of anger and frustration and bitterness produced by legalism. Holiness begins with the new birth. It reflects on Christ. It seeks to live in the reality of what Christ has already done for us. And it, put, it puts everything else, all selfishness, all personal struggles, all petty disagreements into perspective and gives us the ability to be truly joyful and truly thankful in all circumstances and at all times. And as I mentioned, so often we want something that's easy. We want black and white. We want it to be very easy to spot legalism a mile away and to be able to tell the difference between holiness all the time. But the reality is the problem with legalism is a problem of the heart and of the conscience. And it's not something that can be easily seen or easily discerned. So you must, you must examine your own heart. You must grapple with these things. Ask yourself, are you self-focused? Do you care so much about what other people think of you? Is your obedience performative? Is it based in tradition? Are you frustrated and embittered by the call of the Christian life? Or are you Christ-centered and focused on Christ? Are you fixated on serving others and desiring not to be seen by others, but to do good to others? Do you obey when no one's looking? And do you bear the fruits of joy and thankfulness to the glory of God? Obedience does matter. Don't make the mistake of calling everybody who tries to obey a legalist or calling everyone who calls you to obey a legalist. Obedience matters. If you are in Christ, then you are dead to your sin and you are alive to God. And so live that way by his power, live accordingly. But if you're not born again, if you're not in Christ, then no amount of rigor, no amount of tradition, no amount of self-discipline is going to reconcile you to your creator. So be humbled by the law, be broken by the law, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and then imitate him, model your life after him in true holiness.